Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Jim Prosser at JK Carrier Wines. It's August 31st, 2017. Starts you off with a nice, easy question, which is why wine? That's not an easy question. It's like, uh, why not would be the flip answer, right? And probably other people have said that. I suppose um, wine, because it's textural in nature, it involves both head and hands. Um, and I happen to be a person that's handy and, uh, um, and occasionally I can think. And, I, and, and to tie those things um, is good. I'm kind of a um, jack of all trades in some ways. Uh, other people would describe me as perhaps MacGyver, some would say MacGruber. So I have this skill set that was in search of a job and I always found a lot of jobs that were would take up 20% of that intellectually or something, and I'd go home and run a tractor on a piece of dirt. But this job takes up every skill set from any job I've ever had and leaves me wanting a few more skills. So uh, pretty all-encompassing. can take every minute uh, of your time. Um, that can be good, that can be bad. Uh, but overall, it's completely engaging. Most of the time, um, you're there enjoying what you're doing, and you're not stuck in a cubicle. So what did you do before getting into the industry? Um, I used to lead a more societally correct life. Uh, I used to finance, well, I'm from Oregon. I grew up in Bend. Um, we had a hardware store and a lumber yard. Went to Oregon State, graduated at maybe the most boring time that people could go to school. Uh, in the 80s, when everybody graduated in 85, everybody wanted to uh, go to Wall Street and, and, uh, and buy a BMW and get a pasta maker and be a yuppie. And I can't say that I was not pulled off that track. Um, uh, I got out of school, went to work for Xerox Corporation and then financed commercial real estate for large institutional investors. Um, the quick and dirty was, I, I liked it. It was, enjoy, you know, it was great for uh, engaging my brain, uh, modeling the real world um, and thinking about things. Uh, but I, uh, I was in that, and, um, and pretty soon driving a Porsche and wearing Italian suits and uh, living in Lake Oswego, so a Tony suburb of Portland, and perhaps a little bit douchebaggery, um, straight up. Uh, and then I got fired from a job and a marriage in the same three-month period of time, which uh, is something that can be a devastator or a motivator, and I'd say it was a little bit of both. Uh, so I answered the only ad the Peace Corps ever put in the back of the Wall Street Journal, and I went to Lithuania right after the fall of the Soviet Union. And I was there for two and a half years, and I came back climbing mountains in Pakistan and Nepal. Um, but when I got back, I was out of cash, I needed to do something. So it was either go back to finance or, um, or do what I'd said I would have done in my 20s, which was uh, go back to school, uh, maybe go to architecture, 
or become a chef or become a winemaker and the commonality is head and hands and so I finally decided I was going to go to architecture school and uh, but I was going to get this monkey off my back of winemaking before so in 1995 I worked for uh, Dick Erath uh, and uh, Rob Stewart who was the winemaker there and it was hard work and shitty pay and no benefits and I came home with a smile on my face every day and I've worked for eight places around the world since and had to come back to Oregon and get going. So that's kind of the Reader's Digest condensed version of the thing. Once you decided to be in the industry, how did you go about learning the trade? Um, there's right probably across all these interviews you're doing, there's a couple different paths. Uh, and one is university-oriented research and that's Davis or Dijon or uh, Roseworthy in Australia. And that's not my path. My path is kind of the other, and that's apprenticeship. So I worked for, again, eight producers around the world um, following it. It's not that I didn't want to go to Davis, just I think more knowledge is always good. It, but if you're always waiting for the next thing, it can also limit you. So I, uh, it was going to be, I think, like 22 grand a year before I had, because uh, uh, I already had a degree and I was out of state, and it was going to be uh, before I had books or, or uh, a uh, place to live, and I had a couple of really good winemakers in the world, one of which, an Australian, said, oh, Jim, you don't need to work for the man, just get some grapes and get going. And then uh, another uh, buddy of mine in Shabu Muzini said, Jim, you don't have enough experience, you should work for me for another year, but you're feeling it, and you've got enough, you should start. And so I came back and did start. And that was 1998. Um, I came back at Christmas of 1998 from France and in 1999 set, set up uh, going about it in 1999 was my first crush and so uh, and started this company so yeah. Was there a particular reason you chose Pinot Noir? Was it purely location or was there something more interesting about it? No, Pinot Noir was a pain in the ass. I mean straight up at the start um, I'm like oh my god this is like too precious. You know, you put it in a 20-ton fermenter and it'll burn the elegance out of itself, you know, so it's kind of like the handled kid a little bit. It's like, oh, and, and if you don't do it well, it's just kind of like mediocre plonk. But if you can tie that transparent frame down in a reasonable way and not put too much of your own imprint on it, it can be ethereal, which is why it's a connoisseur's wine, right? It's about subtlety. And it's that which draws you in. So you're working places, you're doing this, and largely uh, where I was in the world was following uh, great Pinot Noir. And it, it pulls you in. And I don't, mean, I don't mean to be sexist about it, but it, it reminds you of that girl in college that's just kind of like giving you the Heisman all the time, but there's something intriguing and you just have to come back, have to come back, have to come back. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what that says about me. Probably not good, but oh well. When you said to start your own label, what were sort of the, the upfront challenges or uh, uh, unexpected challenges? When I started, so I'd worked for a number of people, right? Um, and that was the great part. Uh, I had people that would loan me time, information, equipment, a part of the collegial nature of this industry that I think is so vital to it. Um, but it was at the time, there was about 100 wineries in Oregon at the time that I did it. There was one custom crush place in the state, um, 
uh, Eola Hills in their old Maraschino Cherry facility, mid-state, you know, or ways away. Um, and temperature at times, not, not to, I mean, I'm sure they've made advances, but um, it wasn't exactly what I wanted. Um, and so you didn't have like easy options. So, but it turns out that seldom is the path to great through easy, right? If it is and you don't take it, that's crazy. But um, sometimes you just gotta get down in the trenches and start going. So I did my first vintage um, actually, uh, uh, and I was working for him at the time for Harry Peterson Nedry. I was working for Harry Peterson Nedry at Shehalem and Brickhouse. So I turned down a couple other jobs that were full-time jobs that I actually probably would have received overtime, actually, uh, as, as I was working them in lieu of putting together this job from two great producers. Um, and that was uh, beneficial. And then Harry was out of space, so year two, I had to basically start from scratch and figure out how to get a winery together, including the space, all the equipment, you know, everything to do it. However, that's where my MacGyver skills kind of came in. Because I ended up in a hundred-year-old barn um, uh, where Wolves and People, the brewery is now, just uh, uh, right at the base of Rex Hill. And, I mean, it was crazy. It was like making wine in a Rubik's Cube <laughs> with not a lot of concrete around. And I had a 13-and-a-half-foot-long forklift in a 19-and-a-half-foot-long um, uh, space. So you're looking, trying to turn stuff, and you know, wondering where the inches are and all that. But um, yeah, it, it, in the end, what you don't know is those hardships are also the blessings because they force you to do things. Um, you know, in retrospect, I would have only started earlier and went faster um, had I known. And had I known there were going to be 650 wineries at this point behind me. So that's kind of, um, yeah, so I think while there were having to piece it together and do it out of you know, uh, a pretty small little nest egg. I mean, I, I think it was, it was a sale out of, a hor out of a house from that divorce that had like 45 grand that got, I had to pay tax on because it was pre, um, pre whatever the change for uh, uh, deduction. And um, so it, was, it wasn't a huge amount. But it was all right to live like a college student for 20 years to get my dream going, so that's kind of the gig. How did you come up with the name for the winery and, and the logo? So J.K. Carrier is a combination of two grandfathers' names. Neither was in the business. Um, they were good guys. I wouldn't basically screw around with the reputation. So it's kind of a, uh, a binds me to an ethos, I suppose. I think if I had an ethical, ethical dilemma and I wanted to be on the right side of that. I could soft focus through what I believe their eyes would, would cast and, and I'd be there. Um, my grandfather, JK, had a Texaco service station on the Canadian-Montana border. He was a little bit of a troublemaker. He ran a little hooch, um, but he didn't do as good a job as Joe Kennedy because I didn't get the silver spoon that I so deserved. Um, my other grandfather, uh, Paul Carrier, farmed 1,200 acres of wheat in Saskatchewan, Canada. Um, the thing that they were both good at is going right through the center of the work. Like nothing, nothing was too much for them. They would do whatever and they would only ask somebody to do what they had in fact done. And I think that's a reasonable um, place to be. It causes you to have to know the job, um, but it also gives you some insight into what your employees and 
people that you work with um, have to experience well. And it's not all glamour, right? Sometimes you just got to get the stuff done. And what about the logo? Oh, the logo. So there's a wasp that features prominently on my, all my labels, on everything. Um, and the reason that it's there is because it keeps trying to kill me. So in the, the, on the logo, it's a paper wasp, but the, um, the whole family of Vespidae, so that's bald face hornets, paper wasp, that kind of thing, um, have, have taken me down multiple times with anaphylaxis. Um, so severe allergic reaction. I've spent a little more than 24 hours in ICUs around the world. And um, I figure if it can kill you, it's good enough to be underneath your grandfather's names, right? The, the label's pretty real. My operation is pretty real. Um, Again, I'm not about precious, and so uh, I think it well represents what we're trying to do in the world. My daughter will probably change it when she takes over, if she takes over. And at some point, your sister joined the winery as well. Yeah, I have, um, I have six sisters, so we're from a big family, Catholic family in Bend. Um, and uh, so I probably wear a few too many dresses while driving the tractor. but. My, uh, my sister, Linda, who's a year younger than me, than me and about four times as smart, um, she says I was crying in my beer about as I was starting this thing and getting stuff done and keeping records and invoices and all that. And, and she said she showed pity on me and came on board. <laughs> I would actually, it's, it's one of the things when we were kids, we used to fight like you know cats and dogs. Uh, she was always raining on my intellectual parade uh, but I think that you know, she and I working together is maybe one of the top things I like about the company. It actually works really well. Um, and so it's, uh, it's good. I would prefer that she just ran the company and more or less told me what to do, knowing that I have the ultimate you know, pull of the plug in case I don't like what she says. But um, yeah, it's good that way. It's, um, and it's a family operation. We're not overly sophisticated about this stuff. We're not naive, but it's an idea of, well, how would we want to be treated? What would, you know, how, do, how would we want to be talked to? We don't want to be talked down to. Don't, you know, don't want to be presented as stupid. Don't, you know, all that stuff. So it's just, a, there, are probably, there are much better, more, more sophisticated marketers out there. Um, and that's fine, right? we're controlling what we can control in the way we can understand it. So that's kind of the, the piece that I like about the business too. How'd you decide what you wanted to grow and what you wanted to make and, and how much? Oh, that's a, that's a, that's a crazy question, right? Cause nobody knows. <laughs> you can't know what you don't know, right? So you think you start, you got this idea about it and gosh, I don't have enough information or then it, you know, everybody runs through a cycle, right, in all aspects. And it's, you start with, I don't know what I don't know. Gosh, it's, this business is super exciting. And then it's like, and then you think you know what you don't know, and the people around you are going, God, what is wrong with that guy? He doesn't know shit, but he's, you know, he's, uh, he's putting it out there as if he does. And then you think you don't know what you actually know. And at the final stage, you know what you know. But you always got to keep you know, going back to the well to learn new stuff. So I had no idea. When I started this thing, it was like, okay, well, I think I, I put business plans together. I'd done that in Lithuania as a small you know, economic development guy, and I'd, and I'd financed real estate, so I understood some stuff. Um, 
So I was modeling it, and I, was shot, I thought, sure, I'd be, uh, you know, 4,000 cases within five years, and, you know. Um, and I'd worked for people that were very passionate about what they did. It was kind of, it, to me, it felt like a, uh, a particularly rosy time in the Oregon wine industry where the focus was on the wine and, uh, and building it and farming it and all those very pure things. Granted, I wasn't at that time uh, selling or having a lot of competition with other stuff, so it was maybe slightly naive, but I still think there was that piece there, and that pulls you in. Um, so anyway, so Pinot Noir, uh, you know, the fickle queen, I suppose, uh, uh, drew me in, but then um, we thought we'd scale fast, and I was lucky. I started, I, I said, like I said, I would have started, I would have only started earlier had I the wherewithal to do that, um, but I started at the time, um, about the time that uh, Jay Summer and Jimmy Brooks and myself were kind of like, whatever, a class rolling through. And uh, it, was, it, was, uh, it was good, and we all got our fair share of light shining down on us. Uh, and we all had our things to figure out, because none of us were blowing it out with money from the start or by, by our operations. So I think I finally got to those 4,000 cases in year 12. Um, but you also have to decide at some point, right? As you're going through this thing, you gotta decide what you wanna be when you grow up. And I'm exactly what I wanna be when I grow up. I'm not, I don't really care that much about uh, growing up. I mean, handle my stuff and take care of my family and relatives. But um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a good idea how you wanna, to figure out how you might wanna spend your day because the business will drive you to get ever larger. That's fine, that's a generally a good premise that a lot of business is done on in the US, but there are better ways to make money than wine. Um, and you still wanna like what you, what you wanna do. And maybe if you have kids, uh, you want them to not hate you and hate, resent the business so that they may eventually stand on your shoulders. So you started off down, you said down in a barn down by Rex Hill. How did you end up in the space we're in now? So, uh, as I said, it was like making wine in a Rubik's Cube, right? And so after a while, my buddy Tyson Crowley, who I'd worked, I'd worked with at ERATH, were very good friends. Um, he, he's just like, Jim, I think you need to step on. Um, I think you're, this space is constraining not just your facility, just your your production, but it's restraining your, uh, and constraining your brain and what you could do. And for the long time, the hope had always been to, um, to acquire vineyard land and, uh, and roll through and, and be that thing which is uh, all wine in the U.S. is sold on, but is true from a large portion of, uh, of wineries in Oregon. And that is this idea that there's a man or a woman or a family farming a piece of dirt, putting wine in a bottle on the place, selling some of it through the site, and then, then being out in great places in the world. And it turns out it's actually true for myself and for a number of the people that I worked for. And um, I think that's, uh, that's a good thing. I kind of lost track of where we are in this. How'd you end up here? Okay, so, so in... Um, so knowing that, I'd probably, I'd look for pieces of dirt in 
anything that came out for sale that was plausible in Yamhill County, uh, a fair amount in Washington County, and some in Clackamas County, and had also um, knocked on a fair amount of doors, looked at plat maps, and, and knocked on a fair amount of doors. Um, that was from 2002, 2003 on, and I thought I'd completely missed the boat. I screwed up, uh, had, had meant, had, had the opportunity to step into things that would be perfect. In one case, I'm like, the place that became Colleen Clemens now. It was 122 acres, uh, 72 plantable. It had languished on the market, got down to like 569,000. And I was thinking about pulling the trigger on it. And a buddy of mine, another winemaker, is like, oh, Jim, this is, you know, that's, that money's just the beginning. This is a multi-million dollar deal. You don't want to throw your whole life in there. I'm like, well, I'm not sure. I went back to, so I decided I wouldn't. I went back to Bend um, that weekend. I was talking to my dad, and he's like, well, let me understand this. This is 122 acres within 35 miles of the Central Business District of Portland, and it speaks to you. Why don't you just carve off a portion, sell it, recoup the, you know, the money, and step forward? I'm like, oh. Why am I not, why did I just stow my brain? So I came flying back over here in my car. I left like within minutes of that conversation. Came flying back over here on my car, it was a Monday. I pulled up to the bottom of the property just to check it. I had been trying to call the realtor all the way over and uh, they were unloading two cats on it. They had closed it the Friday before and were, so I missed that. And then another one had come up that was between Brickhouse and Beaufrere and it was a cool piece, and I was in before the realtors, and uh, looking at it, and oh, I think this is about 40 grand overvalued, so I didn't take it down. And a year later, it had doubled in price, mm -hmm. you know? So I'm not, I'm not immune from making hard mistakes. In fact, probably the benefit of that is that I'm very good at running into walls and realizing what hurts bouncing back from them, running around them mainly, sitting on some. And it was, um, so I was buying at this point, I decided to keep my powder dry, so I was saving my money because I knew I would need to act fast, right? Because properties were moving. And I was buying, uh, there's a 1966 Ford flatbed sitting in the driveway out there. And I was buying that truck and I was telling the guy, oh yeah, my button's stuck on old, um, I'm really, uh, I've really been looking for a piece like this, but what I've really been looking for is a piece of dirt. And he said, well, I have a buddy that's about to put a piece for sale on Parrot Mountain. And I gave him my card and told him, um, if you give uh, your buddy this card, I will not waste his time and it might save him a lot of money. And the guy called me. And uh, he had a financial bullet coming at him that my saved pennies were able to take care of. And so that was Labor Day of 2007. 10 years ago, right, right now. Mm -hmm. And um, I was able uh, to, to take that financial bullet out of his way and we structured a deal within five days and it was too big and it was all this and scary and I wasn't sure how I was gonna do it. And in fact, at one point I had decided it was too big, I didn't wanna waste his time. So I'm like, I think I can't pull the trigger on this. And I set down the phone and then started shaking. And I had to pick up the phone and say, I need to do this deal, and we got it done. So that was, uh, that was in my 10th anniversary, and, um, and yeah, and so then we started, so I was able to buy at the top of the market in 2007, 
And then, uh, and then we built this place between 2008 and 2009 uh, as we were sliding headlong into the recession. Um, it probably wasn't a bad time to build. I had supervisors as opposed to just laborers working on this thing because every other job had dried up. Um, and it, probably if I'd waited a few months, it might have been a little bit cheaper to build. But if you keep waiting, you just end up waiting, right? You gotta, sometimes you just got to move. And so we did it. Um, and yeah, yeah, we're nearly another 10 years in here. So it's going. What's special about this site for you? Um, well, one, the biggest thing is I'd always hoped to have like a, an A-grade vineyard, if you want to think of it that way. And I was, thought I was going to have to relegate myself to something that was less than that. And um, the soil tests, everything we looked at when we did the due diligence was, uh, was great here. Um, but it wasn't going to be easy. It's virgin dirt. So the path is not screwing up. Right, it's not like it's been, you know, it's not like even some vineyards in Bordeaux that have had, you know, in the 50s in particular, were just getting heavy metals and horrible pesticides. And some of those have been rejuvenated from that with biodynamics and organics and, you know, all these different things. But the truth is, this ecosystem was in perfect balance. I just needed to not screw it up in the first place. So that's, that's a big thing, that I'm close to Portland, is also a good thing. I don't own quite enough banjos to actually uh, live on property, even though I have a crappy house that needs a Saturday mor morning, the Newburgh Fire Department and a match. Um, so my wife's a high school counselor. She, we live in Portland. I, uh, I take my daughter to school and come south in the morning. She drives west. If she had to cut that hypotenuse, it'd be kind of hell on wheels. And even from the time I was first there, um, first in the wine business, I wanted the dream was always to have a piece of dirt, maybe a house out here, and then have a condo in Portland. Because you get to the airport quickly, you can go out to dinner and have your second bottle and get an Uber home. Um, you know, uh, and it's not bad. Right now it's a 25, 35 minute commute for me. So is it the best? Some mornings when I need to spray, it'd be much better to be on site. Um, but it's pretty good. And yeah, I, there's a lot of different ways to slice it, right? All, all Oregon wineries are one-offs. There's us out here that, that have pieces of dirt and doing this, and then there's urban wineries and they're doing a, a different thing and, uh, and an experience kind of a thing. Um, what ultimately mattered to me was um, what went into bottle. And the start of what goes into bottle is the site. And, uh, nearly impossible to deny, right? The, the truth of doing this all the way is that I didn't need, I had great vineyards. I was lucky that um, both people I'd worked for, uh, so I was a little known, and, um, and the reviews and things I got caused the top end of the market to be willing to sell things to me. Uh, so I didn't need another grape necessarily or, or to make another bottle of wine. But the idea of taking things from roots through to bottle is is enticing, it's also probably slightly control freak, right? But what are you gonna do with your life, right? Sure. Yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit. What is your winemaking or wine growing philosophy? So I, I guess I'm not an ideologue about a lot of things. Um, uh, I have beliefs. Uh, ultimately, I think what you get from small, um, 
uh, places like like us is is uh, a distillation in glass of what we believe about the world, right? We're not trying to make the same wine every year. You're trying to make uh, a better wine. Um, sorry, I totally forgot the question. Winemaking philosophy. Oh, so winemaking philosophy. So um, from a growing standpoint, first and foremost, not being an ideologue, but knowing that my wife and child and I will drink more wine than anybody ever will off this vineyard. <laughs> and I don't think Monsanto's got my back. So I don't spray in row. If you look at my vineyard, it doesn't look like a golf course. Um, I, I, you know, that soil food web, what's happening, what's breaking down, the, the, all the pieces that are breaking it down and are a living ecosystem need to remain intact and be bolstered, if anything, if you ultimately want to get flavor and performance out of, out of the vines. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm on the, uh, I'm actually the president of the Shayla Mountain Wine Growers, and I'm on a group called the Deep, uh, on a board of the group called the Deep Roots Coalition, which is all dry land farming. And it kind of, most people in that group, well, they're, they're people I'd spend a long weekend with, uh, two, two or one of them. Um, and they're basically not pushing a lot of excess. You know, it's not better living through chemistry by and large through uh, the Deep Roots Coalition. And I, I uh, ascribe to that, uh, that notion. So uh, in the vineyard, we're organic. I'm not certified organic, though, straight up. And I probably should be. You know, everybody wants a validation. I have a friend who says not being certified is like saying that you're a vegetarian that only eats meats on Thursdays. And fair enough. But that's his idea of the world. I have to get up in the morning and look at myself in the mirror and decide that I'm not lying to people. And I think that would be a downhill slide. So we don't do that. But we, you know, so we, we keep pretty basic things here. And then when it comes across the threshold of the winery, um, I don't believe in celebrity as winemaking. I believe in knowing your job cold. And so, um, and that's repetition, that's asking questions, that's being curious, that's having hypothesis, it's doing the experiment, it's evaluating that experiment in a three to five year time frame. Uh, so, and you have to do it if you want your wines to get better. And I think your wine's getting better as a noble, noble goal, whatever that means on any given day, mm -hmm. right? So what are the characteristics of your wine? So I tend to make wines um, that are at the highest end of the acid spectrum for domestic Pinot Noir. I, I don't know if it's like I was like sucking on lemons as a kid or what exactly. <laughs> but it's not, I don't have the desire nor the hipness to have it taste like Christmas trees, which is a current fad, right? An old, very old school way of, it, of thinking about it is super structured with acid as the lead and quite a bit of tannin and then really substantial wine to back it, to balance it, right? So ultimately, I think that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for it balanced. I like wines that are balanced at the red end of the spectrum. I like wines that are balanced at a deeper end of, end of the spectrum. Um, but ultimately, that's what I'm looking for. And since acid is what takes Pinot Noir to age, I'm looking for uh, that age. I get that they're probably a lot, the fat end of the bat is probably a lot easier to sell wines that are immediately just all this big and hedonistic and all that. But that's not really my gig. I like the wines in the seven, eight, ten year kind of time frame. And so you have to purpose build them to do that. You have to wine the spring in the bottle if you want it to come back over time for people. And so I build pretty, um, 
pretty substantial wines. They have to be, as New World winemaker, you have to at least have accessible wines. They have to at least be accessible when you open the bottle. Otherwise, people just say, oh, they're too structured, he's a crappy winemaker, right? And that's the, whereas maybe if you're in, in the Revue de Vendre Francais, and they'd say, oh, well, don't even think about drinking it for six years and then start. So you have to run that knife edge. And, um, but if you want to, to age, you've got to put the stuffing in them, you know, build the structure for them to do so. So my wines are, there are more available wines at the start. There are probably prettier wines at the start. Um, my wines are pretty tough, mm -hmm. right? They've got some, some backbone to them. I would decant everything in the first three years for sure, um, just to get an oxygen molecule to the tan and make it get a, get a little better performance out of it. But what they will do is what my experience has been with, uh, uh, with Burgundies, is in the first three years they'll put on heft, and then they'll go on their run of complexing. And you know, if you like to drink them when they're you know, three or five fruits or something, great, drink them young. If you like to drink them when they're cigar box and saddle leather, then, which is where I like, you know, drink them at the eight year mark, 10 year mark. And I'm not, I'm not here to tell people what their palates are, I'm to present something. And then ultimately people decide whether they're in or not. We're not a mainstream wine in some ways. Uh, in some ways, the, but the people that find us that are after acid and structure and built and very classic kind of old world without being a complete barnyard, mm -hmm. um, they find our wines and they stick. They stick pretty hard. So, um, you know, that's what we try and do. We're in 19 states, the Japan and Japan and the UK, high-end dining and dedicated bottle shops. Um, we could be bigger. I have to, again, decide what I want my life to look like. Um, I want to go to the places I want to go to. So we're in. Culinary ties, it's New York, San Francisco, Tokyo, whatever. Mm -hmm. And place where I can ski or fly fish because nobody buys wine before 11 o'clock in the morning. And <laughs> it's my life, right? So that's kind of the, uh, the gig. Maybe that's a little centric, but um, you gotta decide what you're in for, right? Yeah. What has surprised you most about being in the Oregon wine industry? Something you weren't expecting? Jeez, I don't know, what's, what's been unexpected about the uh, Oregon wine industry? I think early on when you get into it, or when I got into it, and I, I'm sure it's modified somewhat over 20 years, but um, like other business pursuits, the, com the competition thing is more cutthroat. Um, and the idea that you might glean some ideas by talking, you know, I mean, people do it, but you usually hire consultants to give you the information that you don't otherwise have versus having a glass of wine with somebody and trying to, un hey, I'm in this thing, uh, I've got a cash flow crisis coming up in 11 months, as best I can tell, what do you think, who do you know, blah, 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 or you need employees, like, God, I, I really need somebody to help me with this. And, your network is amazing, and that people are willing to help and do that. And it raises, right, it's, I'm sure you've heard it plenty, but it's about a rising tide raising all ships, and I think it really is true. I've had that uh, fortune uh, rained down on me, and I just know that I have to pay that forward. So you try and do it. I don't think buffaloing people, I'm a pretty straight shooter, which probably comes across. Um, 
which may, may not be uh, the perfect thing for, for marketing, but in the end, people know where I stand, and, I, I'll, and I, I'll do what I say I'm gonna do, period. That's probably too earnest. I know when, you start, when I start getting too earnest, it's too far, too precious. Outside of the pure growth in size, what are some of the other changes you've seen in the industry since you've been a part of it? Oh, well, there's been, well, it's like anything else, right? There's fashions that things roll to, the direction of, you know, the parkerization of wine ever more big, and then the, the anti-parkerization of wine going the other way, and, and what's hip now, and uh, what I have, I've seen a trend lately, which I don't think is really all that helpful. I think there's some picking fights uh, that's, that, that aren't fights. There's producers out here been doing it for a long time. Uh, you know, if like my buddy Tyson Crowley and I are looking, like <laughs> we would never say some of the things that I hear about other people bagging on people that have been here for a long time. Oh, they didn't really know what they were doing and it should have been this or it should have been that. I just think that's a cutting people's Achilles kind of a way to get to nowhere. Doesn't, you know, cutting people's legs out from under them to get ahead, that's, that's not the thing. So I don't really like uh, uh, that piece. Um, that said, I think there's, by and large, people are still really helpful and amazing. And I think there's plenty of room here. Is it, you, you, if you try to be derivative, right, you try to be exactly like somebody else. Let's say I decide I want Ken Wright. I'm only successful. I want to be just like Ken Wright. Well, I can try, but I don't have his palate. I don't have his vineyards. So there's no way I'm making his wine. But if I try to be exactly like Ken Wright, the best I can be is one step behind Ken Wright. So you kind of have to occupy your own space. What do you believe about the world? How does it go? It's not gonna, I'm not influencing what Jackson family's doing. I'm probably not influencing what that next waiter that bought two barrels this year is putting a cute label on something is doing. So, you know, not stay in your lane. Take your lane wherever the hell you want to, but, uh, but yeah own that lane and uh, don't try and drive in other people's lanes. What is the impact of uh, Jackson Family, influence, money from France, things like that that are coming into the, to the industry? Well, I work for kind of the originals in that. I work for Druin. Mm -hmm. And um, I, think that it's, I think it's great, right? It's people voting with their pocketbook. They're saying, oh, this is a worthy place. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing ever more for all the right reasons based on quality. Um, I think so far people have been very good in coming in and becoming a part of the industry, not just, you know, clearing the table and saying, no, you're wrong, this is it. They're gonna do, people are gonna do what they want anyway, right? Be they large or be they small. And um, um, I hope that was, doesn't get lost is that idea, that shared collegial kind of thing, because I think it really has helped move Oregon forward. And it's an environment that is, is, is good, it's good to work in. It keeps, it, if you're not gonna become the next billionaire in it, then you, you might as well enjoy it, right? So, and I think it's, uh, it's more enjoyable that way. So, uh, I hope that that stays um, entrenched, and uh, because what it, I think well, traditionally what it's been it, is in Oregon, if what you were trying to do was get three bucks more a bottle because it said Oregon on it, you'd get a cold shoulder. 
And if what you're trying to do is raise the bar in Oregon, you get about as much help as you needed. And I think that's a good, um, that's a good way to go. So speaking of that, what, is the, what do you see in the future for the Oregon wine industry in the next 10, 15, 20 years? I don't know, it's hard to believe that it will, uh, um, you know, that wineries won't keep popping up like mushrooms. Okay. Um, it's, it's, I'm sure that they will. Um, and the industry will get bigger. Uh, it's, it's all changing. Um, I guess, I don't know, is the, the truth of what will happen. I think Oregon will maintain more providence, right? It's gonna get more of a reputation out there. It's gonna continue to because uh, because of the doubling down of people and people from outside the area and just being more known and um, I think there it's a little incumbent upon us to help steer that to under have people understand what good vineyards and good wines are and where they will um, ultimately what the I suppose you could you could call it terroir if you want to use that word but um, but ultimately, I think it's, it's our idea to take people and have them understand these things cold, that it's about the land. I hope that the conversation is, is about the land and what's in bottle and the distracted talk about the middle of, oh, I used 200% new oak and blah, blah, blah. It's like, it's a process. In, it seems like a kind of a slightly junior varsity game versus the a more serious game about like, what matters here, this and this. You can do what you want on your own road, mm -hmm. you know. What about for you, what's the future for you and for JK Carrier? Well, so we're, we're, uh, um, we're kind of where we want to be, which is about a 4,000 case winery. Um, I don't need to make more wine to build better wines. Uh, I hope that I'm still on an upward cycle. I mean, most, vintage, most, vineyard, most vintners get you know, 35 vintages, soup to nuts. And you get inside that, you get a handful that are really, you really need to work hard to make this plausible wine. You get a handful that are eminently beautiful. Um, I think being a non-formulaic winemaker helps with that because if you're just a formulaic winemaker, you can get you know, the center cut of the standard deviation, but you don't capture the two ends. And um, uh, so I think, I, I hope that our winemaking continues. We're gonna, we're gonna keep pressing it, but that's, that's you know, my idea too. And are my ideas in sync? Are they in fashion? Probably not. I'm not exactly a fashion plate. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the, 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 when I worked in Burgundy, I had, well, not just Burgundy, but a couple experiences in Burgundy where I had moments of epiphany. And I think they inform your winemaking, right? And you have them as a, as a consumer and you know, uh, you know, along the way, you're like all of a sudden you're at a dinner party and you're drinking this wine, oh, that looks cool, yeah. And then all of a sudden you, by opening a bottle, you can understand what 20 seconds before you couldn't understand. It's like walking into um, the Louvre and seeing a great painting and like your mind is blown by virtue of, you know, it just, 
the, the cogs move. And, um, and I had that experience a few times in, in Burgundy, and I don't think I could get back to making Syrah-esque Pinot Noir. But that's my gig. If you love gloppy Pinot Noir, sell the hell out of it. Um, yeah, so here I, I'm hoping that um, for us, what I would like to happen is be maybe in my daughter's time frame, or because it takes a while, is be a reference winery. They're around the world. You find them. This is old school. It might might actually not be the right thing given social media and everything else. But they're the way that that places get to five generations and such is that they they become benchmark wineries, right? Reference wineries, and. Uh, if at some point we could be considered a reference winery at the high end of the acid spectrum, that would be great. Um, can I say that? I can say it, but again, it's slightly douchebaggery, right? Like self-naming or so, uh, so I try not to do uh, too much of that, but that'd be the out and out goal. Um, because, because of having a 1938 bone mar that was hidden from the Germans behind a false wall and like, it was a seven minute show, but it was amazing. And amazing that you could understand maybe your grandfather's work. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, um, those are the things that, that win you over. So I don't know if I answered anything correctly. But, Definitely. Yeah. What advice would you have for someone who wanted to enter the industry? Um, I, well, it depends what part of the industry, right? There's certainly need, there's need in, um, uh, in the vineyard, more need than people really know. Uh, there's need uh, in sales, absolutely, because there's all these wide-eyed dreamers, probably myself included, build it and they will come. But they don't come, right? You gotta go out and you gotta sell it, you gotta do the thing, so. Uh, so kind of eyes wide open. Um, Yeah, give yourself a give yourself an edge by getting some experience and making yourself valuable to somebody, right? You know, I'm a totally analog guy, and like, I, somebody could help us with IT kind of kind of things, and not like I have heavy IT things, but uh, you know, or social media presence or all that, because I don't really care. Um, but uh, you know, there, how do you how do you make yourself helpful and in particular with smaller operations, like how are you multifaceted? Because there's four of us in my company and you might be on the tractor one minute and in the tasting room the next and uh, cleaning out a drain the next, right? So there's like no sanctity here. It's like just go for it. Um, yeah, I, I, I talked, and there's talking to people. That's what you gotta do. Because what you could ultimately do, I think, when I talked about asking people, you, know, you need an employee, I'm gonna ask my network of friends and people I believe in and great winemakers, hey, who do you know? And, oh, I, you know, I had this guy coming out, he helped us bottling for three days. Seemed pretty on top of it, you know? Well, you should talk to him. I'll take that three ways to Sunday over anything else. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. 
The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.